we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Good morning and welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez, your host for this hour. And for the first half, we will be speaking with Dr. Lynn Pascarella. She is the president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, former president at Mount Holyoke College in in Massachusetts, and also former professor of philosophy at the University of Rhode Island and and the associate dean of, of their grad school. Dr. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's my pleasure. I appreciate this chance to speak to you because while I could have sought out one of the heads of our local schools in the area, uh, you have a firmer grasp on the national perspective of many of the post-secondary institutions in this country. There are over 1,000 members in the American Association of Colleges and Universities, and these are mainly, the members are comprised of of the heads, the deans, the the presidents of, of these schools, and... And you have had to have been living under a rock within the last week to not have heard about the monumental, uh, I think I'm not being hyperbolic here, the the seemingly controversial decisions that the U.S. Supreme Court made that affect higher education institutions in this country. I'm speaking, of course, about the ruling that was the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College and UNC uh, that struck down the longstanding precedent of affirmative action. That was followed up by the decision to strike down President Biden's student loan debt forgiveness plan that would have forgiven up to $430 billion of debt for students in this country. Uh, But but yeah, they're an unfortunate set of decisions. And how, I mean, where do we begin? Uh, What was your immediate reaction to both of these Supreme Court outcomes? Well, these are decisions that will have a profound and lasting impact on higher education. And we were very disappointed by by both decisions. Um, We see them as a, a major setback for higher education and for our democracy. Yeah, these, these are two out of many other recent decisions that have come as a shock to the general populace uh, from the Supreme Court. Those others are, are part of a conversation for another day, another episode, but this appears to be the Supreme Court's modus operandi now. Uh, we, we appear to have a seemingly partisan Supreme Court committed to rewriting established precedents. And part of your, your background, your, your knowledge base is in philosophy, uh, ethics, morality. We're kind of I mean, as for, for the highest court in the land, it has to be impartial. They're still working on that pretense, but it seems to be that, that we're trying to, we're, 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 we're taking away rights. We're taking away equity. Affirmative action was put into place to hopefully help those of lesser means, of lesser resources, of, of, of a minority background to have that same firm footing as, as everyone else. What, what, what do you think is going to be the immediate impact of the uh, students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College and UNC ruling? Well, I think we'll have fewer students of color in our most selective institutions, and we will continue to perpetuate the already growing economic and racial segregation in higher education. As you mentioned at the outset, one of the most disappointing aspects of these rulings 
was that they broke, as was the case with the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade, with this principle of stare decisis. Let the, let the precedent stand, let the decision stand. And the dissenting justices in these cases noted that there was no legitimate justification for breaking with precedent that went back to, well, the cases around affirmative action with regents uh, of the University of California versus Baki in 1978, Gruder versus Bollinger in 2003, Fisher, the two cases brought um, against the University of Texas, the uh, latest one in 2016. Each one of those decisions affirmed a compelling interest on the part of the government in a diverse student body, the legitimate educational purpose of that, and the right um, under academic freedom to use race as a factor um, a, a limited factor, but as a factor in making decisions. But it also goes back to uh, an earlier ruling, uh, Sweezy versus New Hampshire, which was uh, a case involving academic freedom, freedom of expression that involved uh, a Marxist economics professor. And in that case, the, the justices, in particular Justice Frankfurter, ruled that freedom on the part of institutions of higher education entails the right to determine who should teach, what can be taught, how it's taught, and who gets admitted. And so here too, the courts have upended this past precedent and what the justices identified as important not only to the functioning of American institutions in higher education, but to democracy itself. The strength of American higher education is that it, our institutions are independent from governmental control, or at least they have been in the past. <laughs> and this ruling will not, uh, it won't uh, differentiate it. It's, it's public institutions mainly, but also private institutions are, have to operate under the same pretense now. They do. So uh, Harvard is an independent institution, UNC public, but they are disallowing race consciousness in admission processes at all institutions in higher education. Now, is there still some wiggle room after the, the ruling to, to still uh, go outside of, of because it was my understanding that, that the affirmative action was more, more so, it wasn't set law, but rather an agreed upon action to provide equity. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it wasn't, it wasn't a bill or an act or a law. It was more so um, a guiding principle. Right. These are practices as opposed to policies. Uh, both Harvard and UNC had a goal of diversifying the student body, again, based on what they regarded as legitimate educational purposes. The dissenting justices pointed to studies demonstrating the benefits of living and learning in diverse communities, um, helping people to imagine the possibility that some of their most fundamentally held beliefs might actually be mistaken learning to speak across differences with people who are different from oneself, imagining what it's like to be in the shoes of another. And, and all of these skills and competencies help people thrive in work, in citizenship, and in life. In the Harvard case, they scored applicants based on six different categories. So they looked at the academic record, extracurricular activities, athletics, school support, personal uh, characteristics, and then a category called overall. And it was in that overall category, which takes into account those previous five categories, that admission officers were considering race as a factor. And with, with the goal of increasing diversity, 
So they went through a process of an individual reviewer, then regional reviewers, and then they have a committee of 40 people uh, that employs what's called a LOP list. And they get rid of uh, candidates um, based on uh, the potential for contribution or the fact that there are others who are more qualified. And here's a case at this point where they looked at uh, racial background as something that could serve as a plus in, in favor of an applicant. So this case hinged on whether giving a plus to an applicant automatically meant disadvantaging or discriminating against another candidate who didn't have that. And in the case of Harvard and UNC, they said, well, we also give a plus to legacy admits, people whose parents, grandparents, um, or others in the family have attended the institution, to student athletes, to people who play an instrument in our, and we want them for the orchestra. Uh, so there were many other categories that could count as a plus. They didn't disallow those, but they disallowed race, except, as uh, was pointed out in, uh, in Justice Jackson's dissent, that uh, for military academies. So they can still use race as a factor. And, and she rightly pointed out it's okay to use race uh, because it's all right for people of color to be in the bunker but not in the boardroom. DEI initiatives throughout the country. I, I, I know that this is outside the conversation of school admissions, but, but uh, as far as employers, you had, you had American Airlines, you had uh, Match Group, Google, Dell, all of which wrote in uh, and, and warmed about the, in a brief to, to the Supreme Court about how this is going to also affect their hiring practices. Can you see some of that also affecting the institution hiring process as well? Is that something? Yes, that, that... absolutely. I think this case does set a precedent and it, it opens up, as we've already seen today, uh, Missouri has now proscribed, they've prohibited uh, the use of race in scholarship awards. And, you know, so you can imagine bridge. Some of which are specifically yeah. for people of race, people of a certain yes. background. Uh, right. And so it will limit the autonomy of institutions uh, in in ways that subvert the, the overarching goal of equity and inclusion in our society. So I, I think businesses are going to have to contend with this. The next lawsuits we know will take place in businesses who uh, use hiring practices that want to diversify not only their institutions, but their boards as, as important to the democratic purposes of of our institutions. So it's the the beginning of a long road ahead. There's a lot of tentacles to this that we have yet to see, and we won't see for a while, I feel like. And Dr. Pascarella, I, I know that previously before this, there were already nine states in which race-based affirmative action was already prohibited in, in public higher learning institutions. What were you seeing in those states, some of which I assume members of, of, of the AAC and you reside within, uh, what were you seeing in those states where, where that was ongoing and, and what could potentially happen? Could could that happen on a, on a national level? It could absolutely happen on the national level. So there were nine What's... states, Arizona, California, Florida, Idaho, Michigan, Nebraska, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Washington. And, and the states that banned affirmative action have seen a long-term decline in the share of Black, uh, Latin A, Native American students being admitted and enrolled at their public universities and also that the alternative policies designed to increase representation um, haven't proven effective. Uh, in each of those nine states, underrepresented minority enrollment at flagships and flagship institutions has not kept pace with increases in the state's college-age population. 
um, the, among the most egregious consequences was the University of California system. They had Proposition 209 that barred consideration of race in admissions, and they saw a 50% or more decline in UC's most selective campuses. And they've tried a number of race-neutral measures designed to increase diversity, and yet despite those efforts, um, they haven't achieved the level that they had prior to this this banning. And so, and we've seen the same in, in Michigan, uh, where black undergraduate enrollment dropped at the University of Michigan from 7% to 4%. So this has dire consequences for institutions. Um, and for those who have been traditionally denied equal access to higher education, the, the court was very clear in, in pointing to both majority and minority opinions in this case, dissenting opinions, talked about the long uh, legacies of racism and white supremacy in our society, uh, Brown overturning separate but equal under Plessy versus Ferguson, but also the ways in which if you are um, black or Hispanic, then you're much more likely to be in a school district that has teachers who are less qualified that doesn't offer AP courses, that doesn't offer extracurricular activities, that doesn't provide the same types of opportunities for students to excel on standardized tests or other measures that institutions like Harvard and UNC use to assess candidates. And so without a consideration of the realities that race continues to disadvantage individuals, um, we are going to be back to where we were prior to the rulings that I mentioned earlier. I'm from the home. My home state is Florida. So uh, you, you, we had to touch that because I, I feel like that's a that's a place that's a, a case study for, for, for future generations as to what the ramifications of some of these rulings are. Um, yes, yeah. it's we're seeing a lot of I mean, I, I constantly say this on this program, but uh, society is a history is a pendulum swinging constantly back and forth from from a much more conservative uh, time to, to liberal and back. I want to hold on to hope that that we could amend this. I don't know how right now because we have more federal judges that are also that were appointed at a record level uh, in the last few years that that we'll see more of these cases. You already mentioned the Missouri case. That is it's it's a, it's somewhat troubling. I, I'm, I'm glad and, and, and I thank my lucky stars. I'm, I'm done with my uh, secondary education. Uh, I worry about my, my children and, and, and so forth. But is there any is there any hope that you see in the immediate for this uh, to not, I guess, not be as detrimental as we think it might be? Yes, there's hope. <laughs> uh, you have to have hope. Philosopher John Dewey said that democracy is born anew with each generation and higher education is the midwife. And, and here we have an opportunity to work together to address what is truly an existential threat to higher education. The laws that are being put in place in Florida that ban the teaching of critical race theory or other so-called divisive concepts that have eliminated diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that... Uh, Which is a misnomer, if I'm not mistaken. The, the, <laughs> yes. the CRT well, is a legal study term that that has been, I guess, taken and, and, and like many words nowadays, have been taken yes. and, and been, uh, forgive my French, bastardized to, to, make, to, make, <laughs> to become some other thing that they're not. Um, right. It is the proverbial dog whistle. So it is intended to trigger a set of emotions based on uh, appeal to a theory that applies only in colleges and law schools. I, I taught critical race theory for two decades at the University of Rhode Island when I taught courses 
in race, gender, and the law. And it focuses on ways in which racism goes beyond institutional acts of racism uh, and in, extends to the ways in which institutions, policies, and practices perpetuate racism in our society. Um, that's not taught in K through 12, <laughs> but the concern is... Others would have you think otherwise. Yes. The, the concern is really, uh, it goes back to a broad attack on higher education in general and liberal education in particular. It, 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 and it focuses on the fact that many people believe that higher education is too expensive, too difficult to access, doesn't teach, teach people 21st century skills. But more importantly, that campuses are bastions of liberal progressivism, brainwashing the next generation of snowflakes to melt at the slightest abrasion of their sensibilities. So they see college and university campuses as indoctrination camps for liberals who uh, want to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they see this as a zero-sum game. They see inviting people of color to the table as replacing them as opposed to welcoming, creating a broader, more diverse, richer environment in which we can grapple with the grand challenges of which COVID-19 was emblematic. The more diversity we have, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to address these challenges in a meaningful way. And I know that, unfortunately, the audience that needs to hear this, it probably doesn't tune into our our, our program due to its, its subject matter. But uh, I'm sure if they were listening, they'd say, oh, of course, uh, you have a philosophy uh, professor, somebody who's who, 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 who brings in all these multiple disciplines, humanities, social, physical sciences, mathematics, uh, primarily. I'm glad I have you because an emphasis on ethics and morality, that liberal arts kind of encompasses all those things one way or another. And the way I've always seen liberal arts is that piecing together parts of all these different uh, fields of study, different curricula, to hopefully uh, foster a, a robust critical thinking critical thinking and analytical skills. That's that's at the basis of, of all this is to know what the knowledge is, the, the empirical information, and then create your own analysis of it using that information. I feel like yeah, we're lacking I, that a lot in, in today's world. We are. And I'm a philosopher, yes, but my father was a welder at Pratt & Whitney, and uh, my mother was a factory worker as well. Neither of my parents graduated from high school. My mother was married at 16 at a time when you couldn't be married and be in school. My father at 16 joined the war effort right after Pearl Harbor Day. Um, and I, you know, I'm mindful of the ways in which the language we use, and this is something philosopher Michael Sandel has pointed out, um, makes stigmatization of the poorly educated the last acceptable prejudice in our society. And so I think about the ways in which we talk about higher education and uh, conservatives are picking up on this language. Even in the court opinion, they talked about the elites and the, you know, the well-educated um, as if they are synonymous. Um, you can be well-educated without being elite and el you can, you know, el elite um, is seen then as um, stigmatizing the rest of, uh, of society who didn't have an opportunity to get an education. But we know that an education over a person's lifetime will open up opportunities for them, not only economically, where they're going to, on average, make more than a million dollars more over a lifetime if they have a college degree, but, but socially in terms of well-being, happiness, and health. These are important factors. And, and so to deny people access, and, and this is what's happened, uh, I think I fear, as a result of these decisions, um, is is a tragedy, and it will 
perpetuate what Thomas Jefferson referred to as an unnatural aristocracy, where only those who are the richest and most privileged have access to institutions like Harvard or UNC, and everyone else is, is funneled into narrow technical training that will get them immediate employability without the benefits of a, a reflective life, which is more important than ever as we look at studies. Uh, there's a Bates-Gallup study that shows um, that there are very few people who work in jobs that they find meaningful and purposeful. It was 34% of, of students who have graduated recently said that they found meaning and purpose in their work. We need to position students not only for success in work and citizenship in life, um, but in work that is, is purposeful and meaningful to them and to society. So what we've seen is a shift away from the notion of higher education as a public good to viewing it as a private commodity, tuition in exchange for jobs. And the result of that is a fragmented society and the polarization and partisanship that we're seeing now. I guess consider me in that 34% that that takes some pride because I, I I'm glad I'm I'm fortunate and and thankful for my my liberal arts uh, schooling in in journalism and allowing me to allowing me to do this and have these conversations yeah. that I feel like are meaningful. Um, FIU in the house, Golden <laughs> Panthers. Um, I'm speaking with Dr. Lynn Pascarella, and you kind of touched on it a bit. Your uh, first of your of your family to go to, to college, as am I. Uh, my parents came here in 1980. Uh, I've told the story one form or another on the show, but they are the, the tip quintessential Cuban Marielita immigrants. They came in, in, in the boatlift of the 1980. Blue-collar workers as well. And I I thank all the systems that were in place. Uh, in my case, it was Florida Bright Futures and, and other uh, financial aid programs. But the other side of this, the other part to these these rulings was the, the loan forgiveness that President Biden tried to institute, tried to hopefully help some of these already current students, but also post-graduation uh, students have have some sort of reprieve. I have a friend who's a doctor who's still paying for his medical school, and this is some seven years after he graduated. So it's it's almost like this albatross that continues to wait on, on seeking higher education. What other ramifications are we going to see from that decision? Well, I mean, business leaders are particularly worried about the implications of this decision uh, because it impacts every aspect of our economy. If you cannot uh, break free from debt that you accrued as a, a student trying to get an education to to better serve society, uh, it, you delay buying a house, you delay having a family, if you can't purchase as much, so your purchasing power goes down, uh, it, it does expand the, the divide between the rich and the poor. There are more than 40 million borrowers that this impacted. Uh, when I was in school, um, I, I was in school at a time when I was able to take advantage of Pell Grants and mm -hmm. Perkins loans. Um, but also, I, I went to school under the CETA funds, Comprehensive Employment Training Act, where the government invested in me. I worked 35 hours a week while going to school and they paid because they saw this as contributing to future leaders in society. They saw this as, as fulfilling the democratic purposes of higher education. So those safety nets have been eliminated or diminished. Pell Grants uh, have not increased significantly. Uh, there have been initiatives to double the Pell Grant to make it easier for people to buy books, to be able to get transportation to go to school. So these hidden barriers that are put in place as a result of rulings 
like uh, striking down Biden's uh, attempt to, to give loan forgiveness play into uh, why race conscious admissions are so important. It's 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 very troubling to see that the, the, the court make these decisions once again at the cost of our marginalized communities. It's what our show prides itself on is having those the conversations around those communities and You've stated it. I've stated it. It's going to affect those members of, of our society the most. Yes. Um, I, it, the politicization of the court in this case led to a narrative which suggested that the president wasn't uh, allowed under the HEROES Act, which allows mm-hmm. emergency spending um, for the public good, to to make this decision. And it, what emerged was a, a, a reinforcement of the notion that if you're a truck driver, if you're a nail technician, um, y- you shouldn't have to pay for the the Harvard elite to get their medical degrees. Um, but but this would have covered debts from people who did go to truck driving school, <laughs> went to school as There's an certification education. necessary for that as well. Yes, and so it, it is playing people off of each other in ways that are really harmful to us as a society. At the American Association of Colleges and Universities, you have an Office of Diversity, Equity, and Student Services. Would these rulings affect any of the work that they're currently doing and trying to advance equity and student success efforts? I feel like there's an obvious answer there, but I, 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 I pose it to you. Well, I mean, it will certainly increase our work in terms of helping institutions to determine how they can create spaces of welcome and belonging, how they can meet the equity mandate before us by providing an inclusive learning environment um, given these these rulings. It, it One of the fears is that the rulings have sent a message to students of color, you don't belong here, you're not welcome here. And so working with faculty, staff, administrators on ensuring that institutions understand the importance of inclusive excellence and push back against the notion that equity and excellence are somehow inconsistent is is more important than ever. Uh, When we talk about inclusive excellence, we define diversity not in terms of mere representational diversity in terms of uh, differences in, in race, ethnicity, but as active, intentional, and ongoing engagement with differences in, in people in curricula and the co-curriculum, the intellectual, social, cultural, geographic communities with which individuals might connect in ways that increase one's awareness of content, right. knowledge, cognitive, and empathetic understanding of the ways in which uh, individuals act within systems and institutions. One of the real benefits of being in a residential college campus is that you do live work with, work with, study with uh, people who are different. And, you, and that's the best educational tool you can have. I learned as much um, by talking to friends on the floor of the residence hall than I did in the classroom. And uh, so to... to Socrates would be proud. Yes, yes. So <laughs> to decrease the opportunity for engagement with diverse individuals, I think does a disservice to, to all of our students. And that was the basis of the dissenting views in this case. There is a legitimate educational purpose in having diverse communities. Justice Thomas disagreed and saying, I've never been able to figure out the value of diversity. Well, it's their studies. Uh, the study Every person of- takes, yeah, everyone <laughs> takes uh, something different from, from their collegiate experience. And uh, yes. I, I, I'm with you. I, I feel like 
uh, a varied student body just just helps to provide new different ways of thinking about the same thing and and hearing from the other. It, it's simple as that. It, you do you, you want your 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 professor pool to look uh, to be different. You don't want them all to be the same cut, and uh, it only makes us better, more more complete individuals. I feel like. Where do you where do you see the AAC and you working to kind of hopefully still continue to tend to the needs of 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 the the people be affected here with these rulings? How do mm-hmm. you how do you foresee the member institutions navigating these these rulings? Well, at AAC and you, our our mission is to advance the democratic purposes of higher education by promoting equity, excellence, and innovation in liberal education. And we're going to help our our members do just that and work toward restoring public trust in the promise of of liberal education at a time when that trust has has eroded. You know, the Wall Street Journal did a survey where they uh, talk about the changing values, changing portrait of American values. And they talk about Americans um, valuing religion, having kids, community engagement less than they have in the past. But they also don't value education as much. Even those who've earned a college degree, they're not sure about the value added of that. So we spend a lot of time working with business and industry. We do a, a series of employer surveys that we've run since 2007, looking at what employers value the most about college graduates. They value a broad liberal education. They value um, critical thinking skills, the capacity to write, speak, and think with precision, coherence, and clarity, oral communication. Uh, the latest study that we just, just did this summer showed that that was the top concern that employers had and saw that their biggest gap was between uh, students with college degrees capacity to communicate orally upon graduation in the workforce. Um, and But interestingly, employers were also concerned about government overreach into the curriculum. And they, they valued the independence of institutions in developing a curriculum that they thought was going to be in the best interest of, of students and preparing them for the future. So uh, we'll focus on that. We, we have a number of equity initiatives, including um, an initiative to focus on truth, racial healing, and transformation. We've had an objective to establish 150 centers across the country in an initiative that started in 2016. We're about halfway there. We have 75 institutions. And nice. the goal is to jettison a belief in a hierarchy of human value, to look at the ways in which the historical narrative that dominates some of the conservative policies we've seen has been shaped by the exclusion of voices who have been most underserved, those whose voices have been consigned to the lower shelves of history. So uh, rewriting the narrative in ways that focus on the truth <laughs> is something that we aim to do. And then making sure that we take into account current research. My colleague, Sia Versheldon, has talked about the ways in which cognitive bandwidth, a student's capacity to learn in the classroom, is diminished when the student confronts racism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, other forms of discrimination, food and shelter insecurity. So what are the ways that we can work together to restore cognitive bandwidth among a student population that is seeing burgeoning mental health issues, is so stressed about the state of the world, um, and feels that they may not belong in the community they're in? How do we do that? now that we've had added another layer Mm -hmm. of uncertainty belonging uncertainty is the biggest stealer of bandwidth for students Uh, so helping 
faculty engage in pedagogies of kindness, encouraging institutions to move away from standardized tests and instead engage in authentic assessment of artifacts, student work that progresses over time is something that we aim to do as well. Well, I certainly got the right voice, I think, for, for this discussion. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been great to have you on, Dr. Pascarella. I feel like there will be more conversations to be had in the, in the soon to near future. Um, thankfully, I think <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I think, I think the, the Supreme Court has, has taken, are they on their, their summer hiatus already, I, I believe. So yeah. we won't be hearing any more, any more controversial rulings for the time being. I think we have our hands full with the ones they, they've already had, uh, administered. Uh, but, um, but thank you so much for helping to put this in, in, in perspective for, for our listeners. And thank you for the work that you're doing with the AACNU. No, my pleasure. Thank you. We'll be back with more Buffalo What's Next and an interview with Karen Andalina Scott, the CEO of Journey's End. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Uh, this is Lorenzo Rodriguez. And uh, we went from affirmative action, loan forgiveness. We're going to another issue that, that's uh, impacting us here in Western New York, which is the recent migration of, of, of asylum seekers and refugees here in Western New York and in the Buffalo area, Cheektowaga area um, that they're currently residing in. And I have with me today Ms. Karen Andalina Scott, uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Journey's End, uh, one of the five refugee uh, resettlement groups that, that are working hand-in-hand -hand as part of the, the Refugee Partnership. Uh, this is, was on June 20th, not too long ago, World Refugee Day, in, on which uh, uh, ECDSS and, and a number of other um, agencies and, and these five banded together. Refugee Partnership, a coalition uh, uh, of the willing to, to help our immigrants, to help our asylum seekers, refugees in, in the area that have been coming one way or another. Recently, we heard uh, from County Executive Mark Polencars that, that there would be buses coming. Unlike some of the other buses we've heard, buses filled with migrants that are being used, unfortunately, as, as political pawns, these were merely because they're originating from New York City, uh, a place that's, that's unfortunately uh, got somewhere around, I think the estimate I last saw was about 80,000. Uh, immigrants seeking asylum or, or, or trying to in in the legal uh, system, and they just need they're overworked, over they're strained. So uh, we are more than willing to to help them out here in Buffalo. Those five uh, groups that I mentioned: Catholic Charities of Buffalo, International Institute of Buffalo, Jericho Road Community Health Center, along with Vive, Jewish Family Services of Western New York, and Karen's own Journeys and Refugee Services. How how are you, Karen? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for being here, and uh, you're you're the top dog at, at, at Journey's End. You are, you are. I appreciate that you you, you gave us time today because I can only imagine uh, the amount of the, of the workload that you have currently. Um, I want to start off first and foremost uh, by explaining what Journey's End is. What what's the mission there? There's five groups, but they all kind of work in in different areas. Sure. So Journey's End has an amazingly dedicated team of individuals who um, help to welcome 
um, mostly refugees and other low-income immigrants to Western New York, and we assist them in becoming healthy, independent, contributing members of our community. And I know we've spoken with Matt Tice of the Vive Shelter, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Glick from, from Jericho Road. Their, their focus is on health, well-being. You've got Jewish Family Services that focus on the mental health side. Journey's End, correct me if I'm wrong, there's n- numerous services, but a big emphasis on the legal side, the, the legal process that, that these 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 individuals face. That's right. So while we are primarily a refugee resettlement agency, um, one of our largest programs is our immigration legal services program, where we assist individuals um, to move along the naturalization process, um, or in other cases, assisting people applying for asylum or reuniting with their families. And before we continue any further, I think it's important the difference the differences between we, we, we have a lot of terms that are thrown around. Uh, Im- immigrants are immigrants that they're, they're on the move. Uh, asylum seekers and refugees. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between those two? Well, even with immigrants, immigrants are people who are attending to come to the United States for permanent reasons. So not a student, not a visitor, for example. Those are actually non-immigrants. Um, but with refugees and asylum seekers, they are a very um, similar and same group. They um both have fled their countries, their own governments are unable or unwilling to protect them, and they have experienced some sort of um, um, persecution. Turmoil. That's right. Some sort of persecution or a real fear of future persecution based on one of at least one of five categories. Their race, their religion, their ethnicity, their political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So all of those things um, have to be true in order for somebody to be considered a refugee, and that's both a global concept as well as here in the United States. The difference between refugees and asylum seekers are that refugees are processed abroad. We know that they're coming, they show that they qualify, and then they come here um, through a formal reception and placement program. Asylum seekers, on the other hand, come to the United States, and then they are asking for um, asylum. So same people, maybe um, same persecution, but processed differently. And is it safe to say that the, the, the groups that we're seeing here in Western New York are a mixed bag of those, those two, or is it one or the other? So um, the agencies that you mentioned before, four of us are refugee resettlement agencies, meaning that we contract um, with a national um, resettlement agency who then contracts with the federal government to do that formal reception and placement, that formal welcoming of refugees. Uh, We also work with um, migrants or asylum seekers who have come to our borders and then are looking for some protection once they're here. What are some of the, the countries, the point of origins that you're, you're seeing? Um, so for um, refugees, we see mostly Congolese. It's probably our biggest um, population that we are working with right now. Um, but it's it, people from all over the world. We still um, have some... Iraqi arrivals. We just um, are starting to see Somali arrivals again um, after after their that ban um, from 2016. In terms of the asylum seekers, um, some of those same countries, 
But we're also seeing individuals from parts of West Africa. We're seeing people from Colombia. Um, so some of the Venezuela, places, yes, that you're starting to hear about in the news, we are seeing those individuals as well. I had the chance to recently speak to a gentleman from Nicaragua, and, and his situation is much like a lot of these other uh, immigrants from South America. Uh, it, it it harkened back to my own past with my parents from Cuba. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of eerie similarities that are going on down there. It's it's the Sandinista government. That's uh, Daniel Ortega's uh, group that that is kind of uh, running roughshod down there. It's 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 they're tragic stories, and and I'm 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 like I said, as a byproduct of of immigrants, uh, I'm I'm thrilled that there are groups like like. Uh, journeys and doing this work out here because I can only imagine uh, my folks were in Miami, Florida, where there was a nice little somewhat of an enclave. Here, there's some some groups that are just kind of they're out there. They're in the wilderness per se. That they there's little resources for them to, to immediately turn to and and at, but definitely these these five partnership groups are, are a huge help for them. Uh, I'm speaking with Karen and Delina Scott, CEO of Journeys End, and. It's great to see the, these organizations working together. Um, like I mentioned, the legal legal side is, is what Journey's End really, the, the bread and butter is there. What would, how can you characterize the process for these 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 uh, now asylum seekers, refugees here? What's, the, what's that look like for the next few months or the next year or so? Mm-hmm. So in speaking about the individuals who we've been hearing about coming from the, on the buses, right, from New York City, um, for most of them, they entered the United States likely for seeking asylum. So for us, the first process is um, meeting with the individuals and hearing a little bit about their story. Um, do they maybe qualify for some type of other relief? Is there some other humanitarian category that they may qualify for? Uh, do they have family members here that they may qualify for some sort of um, family sponsorship. Are they even looking to stay in the United States or are they looking to go further into Canada or some other country? So these are some of the conversations that we have or that we have relied on our partners to have with individuals. If it is determined that asylum is what um, people are seeking, the next process then would be to have sort of um, uh these large consults that we do to explain to people what that process looks like. Um, Most people have to apply within one year of entering the United States unless circumstances in their country have changed and you have already been here for a year. So say, for example, you came as a visitor and things were fine when you first entered, but then there was war or turmoil in your country, and now you're looking to apply for asylum. We saw that with um, Syrians uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago, right? They, they came um, as students and other things and had the intention on going back home, but now couldn't. But for most people, it's that one-year filing deadline that they have. So we explain to them what that means, um, what sort of evidence they would need to file, you know, do we think that they do qualify? And if so, you know, here's the things that you need to be saying and doing and collecting so that you can prove your case. Um, Asylum is further complicated because there are sort of two different ways that people can apply. One is affirmatively with USCIS. 
And that option is available to people who haven't had contact with um, either Immigration Court or ICE. Um, you can file this, this affirmative way. Typically for people who have had that contact with court or ICE or other immigration officials, their option is to file what we call defensively, and it would be through immigration court. So those are two different, at the end of the day, agencies mm -hmm. that would be determining people's cases, and each of those processes look a little bit different. Is it fair to characterize the, the group that we're seeing more so on the defensive side? Yes. So that they saw that one year period, but uh, they might have already been here for a bulk of that one year. And and what I have noticed in speaking with other uh, members of, 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 of the partnership, uh, the biggest hang up is in on the legal side. Yes. We don't have enough legal representation for them. The language barrier is a big one. Um, you must mention Western Africa. That's that, that's that's a, a myriad of, of languages there. Um, what, what are those, what, what, is that, that really it? Is that where, where we're, we're, we're caught up in? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the legal piece is huge because, um, unlike refugees who are able to access certain services, access certain benefits, those are not available for the most part to individuals who are, um, seeking asylum. And I should say that somebody isn't technically an asylum seeker until they've filed wow. that application, right? Um, so until you file, you likely are not, um, there are, are likely very few services or benefits that you can actually access. You can't work. Right? That's the, the big one. That's right. Um, the gentleman I spoke to is eager to, and willing to work. That's but right. You need documentation of sorts yes. to to get legal employment, yes. and and that's that's how do how do how are you seeing uh, those individuals those individuals survive in the, in the meantime from the time that they're here to to getting that that asylum status or refugee status. So that is where service providers and the government and um, private citizens have really stepped up to help support individuals from the time that they are coming to Buffalo to when hopefully um, we are able to apply for work authorization for them. But I should say it it will be quite a lengthy period of time. Um, once somebody does apply for asylum, that application needs to be pending for 150 days before you can apply for work authorization. And work authorization will not be approved before 180 days. Hmm. So um, a lot of people have been hearing about this six months. Yeah. And yes, it is six months, but it's six months from the date your application has been pending. So for some individuals, um, that it might take quite some time before they are even able to file their asylum case. Now I kind of want to get into the... the, the, the dissenting side um, the coverage of this uh, you, sometimes we don't have we don't have the exact numbers and and it sometimes is depicted as this massive wave of, of immigrants that are coming here and and then you have the 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 the, the, the loud voices saying oh but but they're taking our resources our jobs there's fears of how much is it going to cost us to house these these individuals um, 
this is more so a personal opinion, but uh, but you you're 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 exposed to this firsthand. First off, it's not it's not a a, a, a massive swath of individuals. About 150 or so. There was two buses. There some more are uh, uh, allegedly on the way, but it's about 150 200 individuals we're talking about in the in the current meantime. Is that correct? For individuals that have been bused here from New York City, yes. We have we had all already prior to that. I having spoken to Matt Tice, there was already they're they're unfortunately uh, strained to, to to their limit uh, down at the Viva shelter. But as far as this this new uh, migration, not that much. That's a, that's a school auditorium per se. That's right. What can you say to those individuals to kind of dispel some of these these thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there is no doubt that there is an upfront immediate cost. Right. Because these are individuals who have fled their homes and most times have fled with nothing. Um, Some of the people we've been meeting with have the clothes that they're in and maybe one change of clothes. And and that's all. So is there upfront immediate costs associated with assisting them? A hundred percent. But we have those resources. Right. We are a country and a state of, of wealth. And we have those resources available to help. There have been a lot of studies done um, that show the economic sort of impact that immigrants have in a community and sort of what that turnaround time looks like. And it's it's overwhelmingly positive to the immigration on um, on an economy. First of all, you cannot have a growing economy without people. Um, Every major city that has a positive uh, economic outlook, it's because they have high numbers of immigrants. Um, Western New York needs people. We have more people who leave than who come, Mm. except for our immigrant population. So I I think most listeners probably know that after the last census, you know, it did show that um, our refugee and immigrant population made a positive impact on our population. So particularly in Western New York, we really need people to be coming here. We um, need workers. Um, certainly, if you talk to um, agricultural industries, if you talk to maybe not here locally, but if you look at something like meatpacking industry, uh, they really do rely on immigrants um, to, to work. And so it really is important for our economy that we find ways to help individuals, um, help them want to stay in Western New York. And again, that may cost us something up front, but midterm and long term. It's an investment. It's we an really investment need for people. A, a, a better right. better composition of a, of a city. And that's right. Right. And I was just going to say, and that's just the economic piece. That's not to say anything about the humanitarian reasons, about the cultural reasons, mm-hmm. which are... I mean, more important in a lot of ways, especially that humanitarian piece. But absolutely, logically, the economic piece also really makes sense. And we have just a few more minutes here, but I, I kind of a hypothetical here. Um, we talked about the legal hangups, but if I waved the wand and made you president of the world, uh, Karen, Karen Andalina Scott, how what would you do to hopefully streamline this this process? How do, how can we how can you make it easier for the folks that are looking for a better, better place to live in than, than they're currently at? Because it, it takes a lot for them for someone to say, "I'm leaving 
my home where I come from to go to a place that, that's foreign to me. But what, what, what would you do? There are more displaced people now than ever before, right? There are more um, refugees than ever before. I would have a plan, both international, um, national, state level, local level, for how we would welcome individuals, um, how we can speed up immigration processes, um, doing some real research and finding statistics on the economic gains, the cultural gains um, for having immigrants come into our community and utilize that knowledge to create a plan. Making sure that, again, you have enough immigration officers, you have enough judges, you have enough attorneys to work with the people who are trying to come in. Because, again, we, we rely on them. Um, you know, people complained very recently about the price of eggs. Well, I think people are going to be pretty surprised when they see how much produce and other things cost if we don't yeah. have workers to work on those farms. Um Conversely, I think it could help with wages and some other things if some industries have to take a real hard look at, well, why do we have to rely on, on immigrants and migrants taking this work as opposed to uh, native-born individuals? But that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> that's, another, that's another episode. <laughs> but really, it, it is the planning. Right now, it feels like there is no real plan um, at various levels for how we will welcome individuals and what that really means and what that really looks like. So on that note, how can we how can we help uh, streamline this process? How can we how can we make it easier for our, our uh, immigrants here in Western New York and elsewhere to 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 seek this the the, the, the life that they're they're seeking? Mm -hmm. um, I think people should first of all be um, active in their community, right? If you um, or somebody who has never engaged in certain t types of advocacy, you should do that. Mm -hmm. You should be talking to your elected officials and letting them know what's important um, to you and running if that is something that you're interested in. If you are somebody um, who has uh, immigration legal background, <laughs> we are certainly looking for for assistance. I was going to say journeys in. How can we? How can <laughs> That's we right. help? We also have uh, we have a lot of positions open, um, particularly in our legal department. I think we have eleven positions open um, across Western Central New York. Um, so if you're somebody who is looking to work with this population, again, please uh, go to our website jersbuffalo.org. And uh, you can see not only open positions, but volunteer opportunities as well. We're, we're always looking for people who can help us welcome in the way that we know that Western New York is known for. Bilingual, trilingual, polylinguists. We need we The more need, the better. We, That's yeah. right. Well, Karen and Alina Scott, thank you so very much for joining us today. I, like I said, I know that it's a lot going on for, for you all, your group as well as the other aforementioned four, but... Uh, I appreciate that you came on our show and, and educated our audience a little bit to the, 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 the situation ongoing out, in, 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 out here in Western New York. But thank you so very much, Karen. Thank you. And this has been Buffalo What's Next. Thank you very much for listening to us. You're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.